Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hill Smithy, come here. What is it, your ladyship? I believe I have invented a computing machine. You dare not overtax yourself, Lady Wolf. It's 1832 here on your British country estate, and your father, the dashing Lord Chalmers Wolf, is abroad lending his support to the war for Greek independence. Uh, what has that got to do with my invention of a computing machine? I was just trying to establish time and place. Ah, and well done. Hillsmithy, behold, my computing machine! Why, my lady, it looks like you've taken a giant mechanical loom and added parts from an industrial pin-making machine. What does this do? You may use it to browse around for... uh, pictures of cats playing the piano, or to share any jumble of words that come into your head, or watch naked people making love, or to shop for a new bathtub. How would your ladyship do any of those things using that? Uh, I don't know. Why does everybody pick my ideas apart? It's because I'm a woman, right? Admit it, Hillsmithy. No, milady. It is. Just because I'm a woman, you expect me to work out every last detail. This machine does trigonometry. Why shouldn't it also allow people in Nigeria to present us with excellent investment opportunities? I would have no idea, ma'am. Then you had better listen to this show, hadn't you? It's all about the innovators going back to our time and continuing forward 200 years into the future when, according to my machine, there will be a bacon shortage and everyone will die. And now the inventor of the mouse. That can't be right, can it? We already have mice. Colin McEnroe. Yes, idea man. What are his hopes and dreams, his desires and aspirations... Does he think all the time, or does he set aside a certain portion of the day? How tall is he? What's his shoe size? Where does he sleep? What does he have for breakfast? Does he put jam on his toast? Doesn't he put jam on his toast? Did not? Why not? And since when? That's a character in the movie The Hudsucker Proxy talking about uh, you know, a mysterious innovator, uh, a, a, an idea man, as he says. Uh, Walter Isaacson's been thinking a lot uh, about that kind of person, uh, the CEO of the Aspen in- Institute. His new book, and he's written many books, including, of course, famously his biography of uh, Steve Jobs. Uh, his new book is The Innovators, How a Group of Hackers, Geniuses, and Geeks Created the Digital Revolution. Uh, welcome to the show, Walter Isaacson. Hey, it's great to be back with you. Thanks. So, um, you know, I mean, the, the subtitle notwithstanding, in a way, you go you go far back into history to find your first uh, genius or geek. Uh, you go all the way back, and it's, it's it's wonderful because I just saw for the second time Tom Stoppard's uh, play Arcadia, which in which I'm sure he based some of it uh, on Ada Lovelace, the one legitimate daughter of Lord Byron. So, um, for people who, who who don't maybe maybe make a connection between Lord Byron, uh, Lord Byron. Offspring and mathematics. Uh, you might have to do uh, some quick education here. Explain who Ada Lovelace uh, was. Well, let's start with her dad, Lord Byron, the romantic poet. He was a Luddite, and I mean that literally. He uh, his only speech in the House of Lords was to praise the followers of Ned Ludd, who were smashing the looms, the mechanical looms that he thought were putting weavers out of work in England in the 1830s, 1820s. His daughter, who uh, had a streak of poetry in her, 
uh, was also a mathematician. Her mother had her tutored in math, and she loved the way the punch cards of those looms were instructing the machines to uh, weave beautiful patterns. And she had a friend, Charles Babbage, who was making a numerical calculator, and she realized that the punch cards in that calculator could have it do more than just numbers. She wrote it could do anything that could be noted in symbols like words or music or art or patterns. In other words, she comes up with the concept of a general interest computer in the 1830s and even writes a program for it and publishes it in a scientific journal. So really, she's the first published computer programmer. And she's also, I mean, one of the things you go through a lot in this book are these duos. And sometimes it's bigger you know, bigger groupings than duos, but a lot of duos. And so she and Babbage, to a certain degree, form one of those duos as he's working on his uh, difference engine and she's partnering up with him. Can you say a little bit about what their relationship was? Absolutely. They were partners. Uh, they were not romantically uh, connected. But uh, Babbage, who was older, was this great scientist, and he did salons where he brought, you know, brought together astronomers. But his interest was in this calculating machine, and he says Ada becomes his muse because she writes about it, she publishes the scientific notes on it, and she really helps him think through the whole thing. So you have a partnership, and we see that partnership replicated throughout the real digital revolution that begins 100 years later, whether it's Grace Hopper, who's the programmer with Howard Aiken of the Harvard machine, or the women programmers of ENIAC who work with Presper Eckert and John Malkley, or you know Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, or Bill Gates and Paul Allen. It's all about getting the right teams and partnerships together. Um, and so with Ada, just to stay with her for a second, um, I think maybe the question becomes, um, you know, was she a, a really, really good and very important and interesting mathematician, sometimes even described as the first programmer ever, although I think you dispute that claim. But was she that good a mathematician uh, whose contributions are less well known because there just wasn't really any space, space right then uh, in the historical narrative for this uh, brilliant, noble-born uh, woman mathematician? Or or is she somebody we seize upon as we go back and try to reconstruct the story because now she's such a colorful and unexpected character? Well, I try to keep it balanced because she was not the world's greatest mathematician at the time. But she was somebody who overcame both the prejudice against women and also being an aristocratic a member of the aristocracy, throwing yourself into math and science is so admirable. So I do not think we need to overstate her claims in order to do her justice. And as I said, I, I would come close to saying she is the first programmer because she's the first person to actually publish a program for a computer in a scientific journal. So, you know, there's been a lot of debates over the years of how good was her mathematics my own view is that there's a lot of credit to go around for being able to envision what a general-purpose computer would be and how you would program it. And to me, that's really awesome, even without trying to compare her with the other mathematicians of the time, because that wasn't her main strength, mathematics. It was being able to connect math and beauty and poetry and machinery and understand what a computer would be able to do. 
You know, uh, as you go through the book, and our, this book is a sprawling book that covers uh, all kinds of venues and all kinds of periods. Um, if there's a, um, a theme that emerges and it's not a universal theme, it is a little bit of the sort of the odd duck theme, right? The, the A little bit of the fish out of water, the person maybe who's uh, not the, the big man on campus or big woman on campus. Uh, there are some exceptions, and there's some very fun-loving people uh, who are chronicled in this book. Um, but is it Ada in some ways part of that, just in the sense that what she would have been a woman thinking about, as the British say, maths uh, at that time in her life, uh, at that time in the the history of the world. Was she a fish out of water just on that basis? Well, I think a lot of the rebels and misfits, as Steve Jobs would call them, who create the digital revolution, starting with Ada Lovelace, are people who question authority. They're a bit rebellious. Uh, As the famous Apple ad, ad said, they're the round pegs in the square holes. But we like that. I mean, you're not going to innovate if you're totally comfortable and you never question authority. So throughout this book, there are people who are imaginative and creative, and that means thinking out of the box. Ada certainly did that. I mean, most women in the aristocracy in Britain in the 1820s and 30s weren't touring the Midlands and looking at uh, mechanical looms and then figuring out the mathematics of how they relate to computers. Let's take another um, uh, person who thought out of the box and and, uh, for a lot of just sort of life structural reasons would have been a misfit, uh, somebody you dwell on quite a bit and somebody who's having a conversation in absentia with Ada Lovelace, and that's Alan Turing. Alan Turing, uh, a homosexual at a time that it's when it's illegal, uh, flat out illegal in, in Britain to be a homosexual man, also afflicted with a, a very difficult speech impediment. Uh, and, and in a lot of ways fits that mold, right? The outcast, the misfit, but the guy who's thinking uh, in, in really revolutionary ways. Absolutely. And she he actually reads Ada Lovelace. Ada Lovelace said machines will be able to do everything except think. They won't be able to originate thought. They won't be imaginative. That will be the role humans play. And uh, Turing calls that Lady Lovelace's objection. And he invents what he calls the imitation game. Now we call it the Turing test to figure out how would we know whether a computer is thinking or not. A movie's coming out next month called The Imitation Game about Alan Turing. And it really, I've seen a a preview of it, and it really captures his personality well. As you said, he didn't fit in exactly. He had that uh, sort of cold upbringing of the, you know, somebody born on the fringe of the British aristocracy would have. He was a long-distance runner. He was homosexual, but not uh, ashamed of it at a time when it was not legal in Britain, especially if you were working in the secret military coding branch like he was to be homosexual. But he forms good friendships and a team of people around him at Bletchley Park, England, in order to create first a machine and then later a real computer using vacuum tubes that's able to break the German military codes and discover the orders sending out the U-2 boats, which helps turn the war around. And eventually, when Colossus gets done in June of 1944, June 1st, uh, the second Colossus machine comes online, and it helps confirm that Hitler doesn't know of the impending D-Day invasion. So this ability of Alan Turing to sort of crack the codes, be a bit of a misfit, but work together on these teams and to believe that machines in some ways 
could replicate the human mind. This is just unbelievably fascinating. So my first chapter is on Ada Lovelace. My second is on Alan Turing. And I think when people see the movie, they'll want to read more about Alan Turing. He really is the godfather of modern computers. Well, yeah, I was going to say that. That, um, And he's also been chronicled in other places. There's a, a play about his role as a code breaker. A couple of movies, I think, about Bletchley Park, too. But uh, I know Derek Jacoby played him on stage, I think, at one point. Yeah, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is playing him in this new movie. Great choice. And uh, pretty good, uh, I mean, a great performance when I saw a screening of it. Yeah, I know. That, that sounds fabulous. So you have this guy who... You know, I mean, if you want to slightly exaggerate, but uh, or at least rely on uh, on the feelings of his his biggest admirers, you know, he may have done as much to win World War II as any single human being. I mean, that may or may not be true, but it's a claim people make, and maybe as, have as legitimate a claim to, as you say, the incredibly multifarious question of who invented the computer uh, as as all the other people who could legitimately make that claim, right? That's one thing you, you sort of say. There is no real answer to, the, to questions like who invented the computer. Yeah, but let's start with Alan Turing, and I'll leave aside, you know, all the people who helped win World War II for the Allies. But when it comes to the invention of the computer, there are many people involved. But in my book, and this is not in the movie, but I think it's great, you know, if you really want to understand the movie, Alan Turing comes up with the notion of a universal computing machine. He does it to solve a problem in mathematics when he's at Cambridge University as a student or just studying math there. And it breaks one of the great problems in mathematics. But as a sidebar almost, you get this notion of a universal computing machine that can do anything any computer can do. Every logical sequence there is. It's sort of a thought experiment, but it helps create the notion of not just having, as they did when he was there at Bletchley Park, create a special purpose computer, because the computers they do at Bletchley Park are hardwired simply to break the German codes. But what's really interesting about Turing is he says, we can program computers, they can be reprogrammed, and they can do any logical or mathematical computation. So in some ways, he's very much the spiritual heir of Ada Lovelace, because he's talking about general purpose machines that can do everything. And that is really the foundation of the modern computer, and why I'm so glad my book is trying to put it in this context, so people see the movie and want to say, oh, I want to kind of figure out how he invented the computer idea, Uh, you know, we can explain it. And it's a great uh, threshold to stand on as we stand on the threshold of uh, the possible singularity or, or whatever there is to come, because Turing is still is still asking that basic question in, in his absent dialogue with Lovelace. She's saying, well, a machine can't think. He's saying a machine can learn. If a machine can learn and if a machine can learn infinite amounts of, of information, how is that different from thinking? And I think we're still, to a certain degree, asking that question. Certain degree. We're asking it all the time. It's still the fundamental question in computer science, which is eventually, can you have machine learnings that lead to artificial intelligence? And in some ways, the trajectory of the digital revolution that I chronicle in the book actually favors a more Ada Lovelace-like approach, which is the combination of human imaginations with machines constantly proves more powerful than just having machines try to think on their own. And so we make our machines much more personal. We make 
Apple Watch or, you know, our cell phones become our computers. And that combination of us with our computers so far has beaten out the notion of pure artificial intelligence or a singularity where a machine say, we don't need humans anymore. So I'm not, I'm not one of those people who's a big uh, worrying about the singularity uh, types. All right, and we can come back to that because I know it came up in your our conversation with Elon Musk as well. But let's just stay where Elon is worried. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll come to that. Let's just sort of stay where we are right now. Were you surprised, Walter Isaacson? I, I frequently am surprised when I realize uh, occasionally just reading around a, a whole bunch of people who are all in one place at once because obviously the story of innovation is often about these out-of-the-box, fish-out-of-water geniuses, these misfits and outcasts. But it's also the story, I think, about synergy and and what happens when you have a, a lot of really smart people in one place. And and one of the things that made my eyes bug out uh, in your book is when you mentioned that, that, that Einstein and Gödel, who's going to do to math basically what Einstein did to physics, uh, and von Neumann are all at Princeton when Alan Turing shows up uh, as uh, as a student there. I mean, I don't know how many other times you found that where sort of like a, a whole bunch of paradigm exploders uh, are all in one place. Absolutely right. And it's not just that they're geniuses, but they're people who think totally different. And from Einstein, you get the whole notion of relativity plus quantum uncertainty comes out of him. So it jangles us a bit. Obviously, with Gödel, you get an incompleteness theory, which is that numbers can't do everything. And that's exactly where Turing is trying to tackle that math problem of saying, can you compute any sequence? And he comes up with the universal computing machine. So this wonderful intellectual ferment And it's actually tied to wartime when suddenly we need computers, and it's tied to sort of breakthroughs in engineering because of things like we're on right now, a radio. They started making a lot of vacuum tubes because people were loving radios, and the theory of how you make circuits comes together with the notion of developments in vacuum tubes with all these really smart people. That's how innovation happens, and we have to get away from thinking of it as some guy in a garage or a garret having a light bulb moment and inventing something. You've got to have that yeasty brew and a whole lot of smart people with different ideas sort of bouncing around each other. And as we go along through your book, uh, one of the real uh, epitomes of that turns out to be this place called Bell Labs. Why don't we take a quick break, uh, Walter Isaacson? We'll come back. Uh, There's some other stories we need to tell here as we uh, page through The Innovators, Walter Isaacson's new book about hackers, geniuses, and geeks who created the digital revolution. Your name is simple, palindrome, the poem that your father never wrote. Fire and passion, and your mother's coldly rational mind in one heart combined. The analytical engine might act upon other things besides number. Were objects found whose mutual fundamental relations could be expressed by those of the abstract science of operations, and which should also be susceptible of adaptations to the action of the operating notation and mechanism of the engine? Supposing, for instance, that the fundamental relations of sound in the science of harmony and of musical composition were susceptible of such expression and adaptations. The engine might compose elaborate and scientific pieces of music of any degree of complexity or extent. 
Government ADA You lived a dozen lives In six and thirty years You were alive You're more than just a name On my hard drive We're back. We're, we're with uh, Walter Isaacson, uh, author of Steve Jobs, but uh, interestingly enough, the author now of The Innovators, How a Group of Hackers, Geniuses, and Geeks Created the Digital Revolution. And this group of hackers and geeks goes back into the 19th century and then comes forward. We've been talking uh, about some of the earlier stories. Uh, Walter Isaacson, uh, I, wanted, I want you to tell the story or talk a little bit about another woman who's part of the story, and her name is Grace Hopper. Uh, one of the things that I often hear is that um, you know, Ada Lovelace's story is maybe not as familiar as it should be, and I think you mentioned a Department of Defense thing that's called Ada or something like that, but the, that it's a real crime that the people who think they know about the digital revolution don't know the name Grace Hopper. Um, so, uh, so tell us about Grace. Grace Hopper was uh, a math professor uh, in the uh, late 1930s, early 1940s, Ph.D. from Yale in math. That's back when a lot of women got PhDs in math, and they were in the forefront of teaching mathematics. But then when Pearl Harbor happens, she realizes her life is boring. So she divorces her husband, she quits her job as a math professor, and she joins the Navy. And she thinks she's going to be assigned to code-breaking, and she actually gets assigned to Harvard, where they're building a computer to do missile trajectories. And so she becomes a deputy to Howard Aiken, who's building this computer. And you know what they do? They go back in history. They look at pieces of Babbage's difference engine and analytical engine that were built 100 years before, and they read Ada Lovelace's notes. And in some ways, they become the latter-day counterparts of Ada and Charles Babbage. You have Howard Aiken and Grace Hopper. They do the uh, the machine together. Grace Hopper does the programming. Grace Hopper even writes a manual for the machine that starts with a chapter on Ada Lovelace and Grace Hopper. It sort of shows how people who understand the history and the trajectory can be the ones who innovate for us. There's an amusing story, too. At one point, the Mark I wasn't working well, and she oh, couldn't figure it out. Yeah, this is great. Uh, and... Uh, and so they open it up, and they notice that in one of the electromechanical switches, there's a moth. So they take the moth out, they put it in their logbook with a piece of tape, and they write, we debugged the machine. There was a bug in the machine, and that helped popularize the term of a bug in a computer. Although I feel like uh, we do a lot of shows with Peter Sokolowski from Merriam-Webster. He's going to be jumping down my throat in a little while. Oh, no, 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 bugging goes way back. (laughs) Well, bugging does go way back, and I think Edison and others probably used it. But I think it may be the first time written down that people used it about debugging a real computer. Well, the other thing that Grace Hopper and Ada Lovelace have uh, in common, and I say this uh, in a knowledgeable tone. In fact, I don't even I barely understand any any of this, and I I, uh, am indebted to you now for helping me understand what certain words that I use all the time kind of mean. So, uh, but the notion of the subroutine, well, I I know that word subroutine. I hear computer people talk about it. Uh, I don't think until I read your book I even began to understand what it is. But but both Grace Hopper and Ada Lovelace play a role in this thing, which is absolutely essential for a computer to have computing power, right? The important thing is it can't have to do the same basic task again and again. It has that task has to kind of be built so it can be used over and over again. 
Absolutely. You have these pioneer women programmers. We said Grace Hopper and Ada Lovelace, and also six women who are programming at the same time as Grace Hopper is doing Harvard. They're doing ENIAC at the University of Pennsylvania, and they all uh, work together, and somewhat separately too, to come up with the concept of subroutines, anything a normal C++ coder today would find natural, but to be able to reuse certain segments of code and have it be stored in a place where you can easily retrieve it so you don't have to write it over and over again. And that notion of elegant, compressed coding comes from these women, because the men were more concerned with the hardware, you know, boys with their toys. They thought the hardware was the only important thing. But programming the hardware ends up being more important because we have to make the machines do many different things. Uh, I just love these pioneer programmers. And it's, as you said, we don't know when we use a subroutine or we talk about a semiconductor, we really probably don't have a feel for how they actually came to be. And I think that makes us a little bit alienated or detached from our technology. But when you see these women figuring out how they're going to save space by doing a subroutine or some people figuring out how do you dope a piece of silicon with some impurities to make the surface state you know, become a good on-off switch or amplifier, this makes our devices seem a little bit less... Uh, mysterious and weird, and something that actual real people created. Um, and part of the joy of the innovators is you really get to meet the, these real people, and they're often very complicated people. Some of them are very nice people. Some of them are very complex people. And there are the occasional out-and-out bastards. Uh, we're going to talk about one of them in just a second, a, sw- a man during who during his lifetime I happened to meet, William Shockley. But before we talk about William Shockley, and I think you would agree, he's an out-and-out mm-hmm. bastard. But um, <laughs> um, before we do, we do that, um, you have to explain about Bell Labs. So much of this story, at least sort of the middle part of this story, takes place at something called Bell Labs. And, and so what, what was Bell Labs? Bell Labs was a research institute connected to the Bell system, AT&T, just like Xerox had its own research. And that's a little thing to remember is that universities like Harvard and MIT and Stanford had a lot of basic research. They also had spinoffs like SRI and RAND and Lincoln Labs at MIT and BBN. And then corporations did basic research at places like Bell Labs. And we're losing a little of that today. It tended to be often government-funded. And they provided the basic understanding of science that helped lay the groundwork for innovation. So I think we have to get back to doing some of the basic research or we'll lose out on this. As for Bell Labs, the wonderful thing about it was that it was vi- it was a one big physical place. We talked about this earlier in the show where you actually get real people together, you know, bumping around, knowing each other in physical proximity. So at Bell Labs when they were doing for example, inventing the transistor, You had the person we'll talk about, Bill Shockley, uh, you know, as a theorist there. There was also a really good experimentalist, Walter Bratton, somebody like John Bardeen, who understood surface states of semiconducting materials. But you even had people who were pole climbers and had grease under their fingernails and knew how to amplify a phone signal. Or a weird guy named Claude Shannon, who 
understood information theory and would ride up and down the hallways on a unicycle juggling balls. So that was almost a metaphor for the ferment in the hallways of Bell Labs. But when you put a lot of creative people together, you mentioned the Institute at Princeton. You can also now we could talk about Bell Labs. Things happen. And that's sort of the great theme of this book is when you put a lot of interesting people together, they not only generate ideas, but they amplify each other's ideas. In this case, very literally, because that's what a transistor does, is it's used to amplify or switch a signal on and off. And, and that physical space is thought of very seriously. Um, uh, I think in your book, uh, it turns out, I think Bardeen is brought in partly because Shockley's on a different floor. He's a, a pro- project chairman or project head, so he's, he's on a different floor. They feel like they need an actual theorist on the floor w- with the rest of the team. Uh, it, that sort of spills over. You think about Steve Jobs, who you know very yeah. concerned about the Apple campus and, and sort of who's going to physically going, going to be bumping into who else. Didn't Jobs kind of insist that the campus be set up in such a way that people would actually physically run into one another. Absolutely. As you said, when John Bardeen comes to Bell Labs, instead of having his own office, he decides to share a space with Walter Bratton, the experimentalist. It's almost like a librettist, you know, and a composer doing a call and response where, you know, Bardeen will come up with a theory about how you deal with the surface state on silicon or a semiconductor, and then Bratton will try the experiment, and they'll go back and forth all day. Likewise, Steve Jobs obsessed when he did the Pixar studio. He didn't want it to be like other Hollywood studios with a lot of buildings. He wanted one big atrium and made sure you had to walk through that atrium even to go to the bathroom or go to a screening room because he said it'll be serendipitous. People will bump into each other. And right before he died, he showed me over and over again his plans for the new Apple headquarters because he wanted it to be a, a big circular building in which people had these corridors like Bell Labs where they'd bump into each other. And even Marissa Mayer, when she went to Yahoo, she told the employees, hey, quit telecommuting. Come into the office because creativity happens when you happen to be bumping into people and in the same physical space as they are. Um, one of the interesting dynamics or or maybe even sort of just differences in people that come up uh, in this book, The Innovators uh, by Walter Isaacson, are attitudes towards proprietorship of ideas. So, you know, in in, in the case of Grace Hopper, uh, one of the theorists that she winds up working with is John von Neumann, who was part of that big Princeton group we were talking about before, uh, a very flamboyant, exciting, fun-loving guy, but also a guy who basically thinks nobody really should claim ownership of an idea. Ideas are ideas, uh, and they, you know, they come up as a result of exactly the kind of collaboration and confluence that you're just talking about, Walter Isaacson. But not everybody has that temperament. And we're, once again, setting the stage uh, before we usher in uh, the devil himself, William Shockley. But before we do that, maybe you can say a little bit more about that, what you found in terms of the the difference in temperaments. On the one hand, you do have the von Neumanns. It's like everything belongs to everybody. And then the other people, I, I would assume, you found made different kinds of claims about who owns what. Yeah, I think the clash or the tension between those who want intellectual property protection and proprietary systems versus those who are more open and more into sharing, both sides bring something to the table. I mean, without having intellectual property, you'd never have a company like Intel be able to afford to invest in the research that creates the microprocessor. 
On the other hand, people are much more open with their ideas. It allows the free spread of ideas. I don't think you could say one version is totally right and the other is wrong. I think when they're kind of competing with each other, you get it. For example, one of the people who's very adamant on the side of open, free and open source uh, software is Richard Stallman, a guy who had worked at MIT. And he takes uh, Unix, which is a proprietary thing developed at Bell Labs, and creates an open source version of it called Linux. Likewise, throughout the computer age, I mean, one of my favorite stories is Steve Wozniak. You know, he creates a wonderful circuit board and uh, for what becomes the first computer, but he's giving it away to all of his friends in the Homebrew Computer Club, the specs for it. And his close friend from down the street, Steve Jobs, says, no, let's go in our parents, my parents' garage, and we can make these things and sell them. So Apple becomes a very proprietary company with its hardware, software, and patents, but there are other people who are much more open. And I don't try to say... Here's a quick, easy answer. I try to tell the stories of when one method works, and then there are other cases when the other method is better. Well, let's uh, at least uh, spend a couple of minutes uh, anyway with, uh, with with Bill Shockley. So uh, I met Bill Shockley towards the end of his life, towards the end of his career. He'd become this incredibly controversial figure because he had decided that uh, that there was uh, that, that black people basically were intellectually wired in, in a lesser way. They were children of a lesser intellectual god, uh, and he was traveling around the country and making these very controversial speeches, uh, claiming to have sort of a beneficent in, intent in saying all this. But uh, it, it was pretty horrible stuff, and it was me more horrible by the fact that he had a Nobel Prize, not a Nobel Prize for anything that had anything to do with what he was claiming, but a Nobel Prize nonetheless. And, and he came to my college campus uh, in the 1970s uh, uh, to great furor. And, and nobody really knew, at least I didn't know, who he was beyond that. And and the, the off-the-cuff explanation was, well, if you've ever used a transistor radio, uh, you owe some debt to this horrible man. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit more. And, and now that I read your book, I, I understand better who he was and whether I feel like owing him a debt or not. Uh, but tell us more about this uh, controversial guy, Bill Shockley. Well, as you say, he was controversial. And by the end of his life, he was a bad person. He really was racist and paranoid. But he's a good uh, counterexample in my book, because most of the people in my book are heroes. But he shows what not to do, because he is a genius. You have to give him that because he's one of these theorists at Bell Labs who comes up with the f- figures out how you deal with surface state problems on, you know, solid state materials and semiconductors. And he has this team. And this team has a duo, as we mentioned before, John Bardeen and Walter Bratton, who invent the transistor. And most people in my book like sharing credit more than they like taking credit. But Bill Shockley insisted on taking credit. He was horrified that his name was not going to be on the patent, so he insisted that in every picture that Bell Labs released of the people who did the transistor, he would be in the center of the picture, and he is. He ends up sharing the Nobel Prize for creating the transistor with Bardeen and Bratton. But when he goes out and forms his own company to make semiconductors, Nobody from Bell Labs will go work with him because he's been so paranoid, so aggressive about getting credit, and had become, you know, starting to become racist. So nobody goes and works for him. He is able to hire two of the great geniuses in the book, 
Bob Noyce and Gordon Moore. But what happens? After a while, they can't stand working for him because even though Shockley is smart, he lacks the basic thing that Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, all these people had, which is the ability to form a good team so you can turn vision into execution and reality. So they all quit. Shockley Semiconductor, he goes into a tailspin. They go off and form different companies, eventually form Intel. And Shockley ends up being a paranoid guy, a racist guy, and touring college campuses and appalling people like yourself. (laughs) Yeah, that sums it up perfectly. Uh, We should take another break here with uh, Walter Isaacson. Although I should say, uh, you just mentioned Gordon Moore. One of the many things that you'll discover when you read this book is, you know, where Moore's Law comes from. I I mention it all the time. Everybody talks about Moore's Law. I had no idea who Gordon Moore was. Anyway, uh, so much stuff. Moore is still alive. It was so wonderful to drive up to his house in California up on a hill and say, okay, you're the legend. Tell me the story. Yeah. Well, let's, let, we'll, we'll try to uh, touch upon that story. Where I've managed the clock abysmally, so we're running out of time, and we've barely entered the digital revolution at all. So let's grab a quick break. We'll come back with more of Walter Isaacson. Your ladyship, something is wrong. Your computing machine stopped working. Well, did you load Firefox onto it? Yes, milady. Did you use an actual fox? Yes, ma'am. Idiot. How long is that little blue wheel going to spin, ladyship? I don't know, like forever. Let's get lunch. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Larry Page. For show pages, articles, and video of the Faith Middleton Show staff inventing the slap chop, visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday's show, we're back with The Scramble. And now... Back to Colin. We're back. We're with Walter Isaacson. His new book is uh, The Innovators. It's about the geniuses and the geeks who put together the digital revolution. And we were just talking about uh, Gordon Moore, who's the inventor, inventor of Moore's Law. And that, that's a nice metaphor for a question that I had for you, which is, you know, we think about uh, Thomas Kuhn and the st- structure of scientific revolutions, a uh, term you're not even all that comfortable with, I, I don't think. But you know, he talks about the, uh, this sort of gradual build to a plateau and then an explosion. And it, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how true that was over the course of history, but it does seem that over the course of the digital revolution, there's just constant change. There's constant foment. I mean, it seems to me that the last, uh, oh, I don't know, 35 years is kind of unlike any uh, any period of knowledge just in, in how fast things move, that Moore's law uh, about computing power could almost be applied as a metaphor to this whole period. But maybe you see it differently. No, I think you're exactly right. And it's not just a metaphor, but Moore's law drives it. What he said was that computing power, basically the power of a microchip or microprocessor, would double every 18 months or so. He modified it slightly over time. And you know what? I mean, that was, you know, 40 years ago. 
it's still happening. And it not only provides a chart for people like Bill Gates to say, well, in a year, the microprocessor will be able to do this, so let's wait and, you know, we'll start Microsoft based on basic, you know, using that capacity. They know which way things are going. But it also helps spur that. In other words, when they're running Intel, Gordon Moore and Bob Noyce, they end up cutting the price of microchips into cheaper than it costs them to make them just so they can drive uh, this whole revolution. Um, let's talk about one of the innovators. And so let's go way ahead to that. And now the digital platform has been developed. The Internet's been uh, developed. And now you're looking for people uh, or people are looking for things to play with on, on that platform. And so um, uh, this guy, Jimmy Wales, comes along. Uh, he's the guy who created Wikipedia uh, he's a fascinating person to me. I think Wikipedia, I mean, people talk about Google uh, and, and Facebook and Amazon and, as these sort of titans uh, of the modern moment. To me, Wikipedia belongs right in there. It is as big a factor in the knowledge revolution that we're seeing right now as, as anything I can think of. But, so, but who is Wales to begin with? Who is this guy? Well, I think you're absolutely right about Wikipedia being up there with Facebook and everything else. Not just Wikipedia, the encyclopedia, but the whole concept of wikis, which allow many, many people who don't know each other to all collaborate and create either an encyclopedia or other things. I hope someday to write books that are wikified so that other people can contribute. Who Jimmy Wales is, is he's just a kid from Huntsville, Alabama, loves math, and, you know, he tries all sorts of things, doing websites, you know, doing finance. But he wants to make an encyclopedia, and he wants a lot of contributors. And he happens to come, up, come across a program called a wiki program that was invented by somebody named Ward Cunningham that allows people to take a page on the web and just change it. Lots of people can edit it. And he thought, well, why don't we event? Why don't we just try out letting people do this with these encyclopedia pages? Everybody thought that so many people would destroy the pages. They idiots would put in stupid things, or advocates would put in unfair things. But the interesting thing is, the crowd, the wisdom of the crowd, almost always prevails over the dumb things people try to put in because it's easier to clean off the graffiti of Wikipedia to take out the bad things than it is to put it in. And so over the years, Wikipedia has become far, far bigger than any imaginable other encyclopedia because around the world in 140 languages or so, people are contributing these things. And as I said, I even did it with my book. I put it up on some sites that could be Wikified, and people would help contribute anecdotes to my book. I think the reason Wikipedia is so important is not just because it's a good encyclopedia, but it's a harbinger of the way we will create collaboratively in the future. And there's just this nice, easygoing guy, Jimmy Wales, who fits into your category of, I'd rather share this than own it. So he builds Wikipedia, but he doesn't try to patent it or own it or copyright it. And that is why with an open sourced encyclopedia, it can grow like wildfire. But there's some interesting questions about this, and, and they come up in, in um, your book and, and in some of Wales's 
conflicts with uh, one or more of his collab- collaborators. I think, I think the guy's name, is it Sanger? Is that his name? I can't, Dave, yeah, yes, yeah. definitely. So, yeah. so, okay, Wales is speaking in Hartford one night a few years ago, and so I went I went with my son, and as he's speaking, I whispered to my son, I'm going to ask a question at the end. Well, you should never tell your adolescent son you're going to do that, because mm-hmm. he says, no, no, you can't ask the question. No, no, I'm going to leave if you do. You'll so embarrass I, me, right, Dad. Exactly. So I didn't ask the question, and then I, I told him later what it was, and he said, oh, you should have asked that. That would have been interesting. <laughs> so what I was going to ask Wales, it, it's the question that Sanger brings up. I, at this lecture I was sitting at, I happened to uh, see sitting two rows ahead of me a guy who I know was a huge a player in the development of fuel cells. He worked for United Technologies. Uh, he, was, he was their fuel cell expert. So uh, what I was going to say is I was going to point the guy out and say, that guy could go on your fuel cell article and, and, and add something to it and add quite a bit to it. Uh, he's one of the most knowledgeable people in the world about fuel cells. And then point to some kid you know, in a blue baseball hat five rows away and say, that guy could revert everything <laughs> that this guy wrote. So how is that good? And th- that was sort of Sanger's question, too. Ultimately, isn't the guy who spent his life selling, uh, studying and developing fuel cells worth more than some kid in a backwards baseball hat? Sometimes, yes. And indeed, there have been reversion battles on Wikipedia that have been fought with more intensity than wars. But somehow or another, uh, Jimmy Wales turned out to be right. That the thing, if you look at the Ebola article now on Wikipedia, it is as good as anything else. But they had to lock did, it. They locked it, right? That was in the Times today. They, they had to yeah, lock the article. lock it. And, every, and so that's how the system works. Every now and then, if something's getting vandalized, you can lock it. Then you can unlock it. Early on, after I'd done, I was doing my book on Einstein, and I went on Wikipedia. It was in the early days, early 90s. And there was something wrong on Wikipedia in the Einstein entry. It said that he had gone to Albania so that King Zog could have given him a visa to escape the Nazis. And that just wasn't true. But somebody had an uncle who had a website who said he once met somebody who told him that or whatever. So I revert it. I say, not true. It goes back in. I take it out. I put in in the comments of, you know, where he was, Princeton. Finally, it ends up the correct way. doesn't have him there. And I think, well, that's not the wisdom of crowds. That was my wisdom. I'm an expert. I put that, I saved that because the wisdom of crowds was wrong. Then I realized, wait a minute, I'm just one of many people who's part of the crowd. Every now and then, adding a little bit of wisdom, but I'm no special person. I'm just in the crowd. And we all, there was a wonderful article on the British aristocracy uh, in Wikipedia. And everybody was wondering who this, uh, I think it was called Duke so-and-so, who was doing it. He turned out to be a 15-year-old kid from New Jersey, but he knew his stuff. Um, we uh, we could have a, I won, I offered to Trinity College to, to teach a cor- an entire course on Wikipedia. I could talk to you about wow. it for hours. I think it would be really fun. But anyway, uh, we're running out of time here. Let me ask you one, one last question, Walter Isaacson. You know, um, Oppenheimer, I think famously, uh, you know, at the uh, first detonation of the atomic bomb said, bomb said something like, you know, what if, what, what hath mankind wrought or whatever question it was he asked. Um, how often do you see that in these innovators that, you know, they, they, they create, they drive progress forward. Oppenheimer obviously had this terrible moment, like, what in the world have we done here? Um, do you ever see that in these innovators, that they're, they're, they look and they see, oh, oh well, what about, what's this going to be used for? Is it going to be used for porn or the, the dark Internet or, or, or hackers? Or do they worry about that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think we all worry about things like whether it's NSA eavesdropping or our privacy. Those are the type of issues. But here's the deeper thing, which is why I tried to write this book. 
throughout history, our moral sense as human beings has most of the time kept up with our technology. We sometimes make mistakes, like do the eavesdropping in the NSA, but then we debate it and eventually we get the balance right. Why? Because we understand our technology and we're able to apply our moral judgments to it. The Oppenheimer case is one time which was a major failure, which is the use of the atom bomb before we had really thought it through. You can argue either way on the atom bomb, but it hadn't really been debated because it was such a secret thing by necessity. But usually, we get to debate the moral uses of our technology. And I'm a bit of an optimist. I think those debates turn out pretty well, just like most Wikipedia entries turn out pretty well, because there is a wisdom in democracy, a wisdom in the crowds. And we have to worry every day about what our kids are doing online, about the dark internet. But as long as we understand our technology, as long as we're not mystified by it or think I'm, I'm not smart enough to understand how a website uh, uses hypertext transfer protocols so it can or cannot be censored, those type of issues, I think we will, as a human species, be able to keep up with the moral uses of our technology. And that's our challenge today, as it probably has been since well before Lord Byron was worrying about the use of mechanical looms and putting people out of work. Walter Isaacson, nothing thrills me more than an interviewee who just lands the plane perfectly at the end of the conversation. Uh, I can't imagine a better way to end our, our, our long uh, and very interesting conversation about your book, The Innovators. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. It was great. Smithy, I think I've come up with something new, something modern. What is it, your ladyship? Have you ever heard of the program Internet Explorer? No, milady. What does this do? You can accidentally click on it and wait for it to load so you can close it again. Yes, milady. 